Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests are Eric and Hiawatha from Bocal, and then for the second half hour, we'll have Dr. Edward Compton from Harvard University to talk about the self-medication hypothesis. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to our website to uh, hamsnetwork.org slash book. Uh, Eric and Hiawatha from Vocal are both here on the line, and I'm going to welcome them aboard. Hello, guys. How are you doing this evening? This evening. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. My name is Eric, by the way. Eric, thank you very much for having us. My name is Hiawatha Collins. Glad to have you here. Tell us a little bit about Vocal. You offer harm reduction services, I understand. Tell us a little bit about the harm reduction services. All right, so I I can speak to that. Um, I work in the the drop-in. Vocal is a large organization that, that... offers different things, uh, which uh, I want to tell you about more, but in our drafting, we offer uh, syringe exchange. We also do peer-delivered syringe exchange. We offer some kind of support groups. We have a women's group. We have a group about um, drug interactions and drugs in the body, what's going on when someone takes, uh, you know, certain drugs, substances, chemicals. And we also just have a, a general harm reduction group for people to talk about what's going on, what they're doing, and, and how maybe they could reduce the harm or, or new strategies and methods. Um, so that's the basic rundown. We also, uh, you know, we, we distribute condoms, and we have safer smoking kits, which, uh, you know, is mainly the, the basic part that reduces harm. Ideally is we, we give them a, we provide a rubber stopper to, to fit on the end of crack pipes or, or, or stems so uh, to help minimize the burning of the lips, and the possible transmission of, you know, blood-to-blood viruses. Okay, that's some basic harm reduction services. Um, I understand that you're also involved in social justice campaigns. Um, can one of you address that uh, aspect of your organization? I'm sure I'll take that one. Um, to add on to what Eric said, we also have um, Hep C um, working groups where individuals that want to learn more about Hep C and um, if they are hep C, hep C positive, they can come in and talk about treatment, doctors, and things that they may need to do. Along our social, so before I tell you about our social justice, I want to basically tell you about our organization first. Our organization is basically a grassroots organization, community-based organization. Our members basically come from the community, and they are um, a dues-paying, they, they pay dues, okay? Our Basic membership come from all over New York City. It's not like we're just in one particular borough. We do a lot of advocacy work, and the advocacy work that we do are around um, diverse issues. 
But the main issues that we deal with, uh, we deal with parolee rights, we deal with um, HIV and AIDS, and we deal with drug users' issues. Um, some of the issues that we have dealt with in, in, in the various campaigns, in the three campaigns that I have named, we have dealt with gerrymandering. For anyone who does not know what gerrymandering is, basically that's where individuals from the community go to, go to prison. Now, these individuals are counted as living or being upstate, but they're only housed there. But when they come back to the community, they, there's no services for them because they're being counted as being upstate. So we have, in turn, had that had that changed, okay? That's um, one campaign we worked on um, with that. With, with the AIDS campaign, we worked on many, many issues, but our main issue right now is 30% housing um, and hospital program. There is no reason why anyone who has HIV AIDS should be paying more than 30% for housing. You have a lot of these people who, who can barely make ends meet, but yet we have a, a lot of people that's homeless because they cannot pay their rent. And we honestly believe that if they are getting any type of income, they should only pay 30% for their housing. Um, in reference to the drug using aspect of it, we have um, a spe um, worked on Drop the Rock, um, the, the in reference to the, the war on drugs, we have worked on that. We have um, created um, or worked on uh, expanded syringe access here in New York City. Uh, we have passed that bill. A lot of times what we in turn do is we go out in the community and we get people directly impacted, whether they're parolees, active or former drug users, or if they are HIV positive or their family members HIV positive, we ask them to come into our organization. And we teach them about the said issues. We also have leadership development trainings, which not only teaches them about the issue, but gives them a sense of worth, a sense of value. We teach them how to feel better about themselves and how they, too, can be an asset to their community and they can be a voice. A lot of times people are stigmatized and labeled when they come from these two groups and they feel beat up, downtrodden, or they feel like they're not worth anything. And they've been told that and they've heard that. But at our organization, what we do is we make them feel valued. We make their voices heard. We don't go out and, and yell and scream for them. They go out and do that for themselves. And that means that they are an asset to the community and their voices count. We also have voter re registration drives, which means we go out in the community. We don't tell them who to vote for, but we want them to be registered to vote because their voices count so that their voices can be counted and they can vote for anyone who has their issues at hand and in mind. Um, we do. Um, we, we have worked on campaigns to deal with the homeless shelters in New York City. We have overdose prevention inside the shelters of New York City. Not all of them, but we go, we have one going around and been in the shelter system talking to people about overdose prevention, relapse prevention, and things of that nature. And the reason why we do this is because a couple of years ago in New York City, we found that the the overdose rate was was the, the number one. Um, killer of people, or the number one reason why homeless individuals were dying. And we felt that there's no reason why people should be dying for overdose. Even today, people die more from an overdose than they do from car accidents. And overdose is preventable. So why is it that in this country we devote so much money to other things than we do to saving lives? 
our organization believes that we want to save lives and believes that we can save lives by getting the community involved and believing in the said issues and taking it to the um the uh, the the people in power, those legislators, the the the, the um the politicians and let them know what the issues really are. And when we talk first we do we do this in different ways. First we try to send letters and we try to have sit downs with these said individuals. We try to talk to them and let them know what the issues are and what our community wants. And if they listen, fine, we have a dialogue. If they don't then we go in and we protest. We rally. We we bird dog. We find these people wherever they are and let them know what our issues are and we try to get them to change, to, to come on board with us and come out in the community to show, to change the issues, to show them, to show the, so that they can show their constituents and the community that they care about the community and they care about the people. And that's what it's all about, basically bringing people together and saving lives. Yeah, I'll jump in here for a minute, too. So Vocal New York is a, a user's union, which Ken prior to the show had mentioned that some people – may not be familiar with the concept. And what it, what that is, it's a it's a group of users, actual active and former drug users, coming together and saying, you know what, we've been historically marginalized, uh, underrepresented, and, you know, basically left out of the conversation of dialogue when the policies are made that affect us. It, you know, and a lot of times it destroys our lives and our communities. So users' union is a way uh, for people to band together and... Uh, you know, have a, a voice, a collective voice. And also, from a harm reduction perspective, you know, as as a member of a user union, uh, so I'm, I'm going to bring it to stigma for a moment. And, and the stigma that, you know, Hiawatha mentioned is drug users are probably the most stigmatized people in American culture, society today. And, um, and a lot of it is comes from external stigma of, of, you know, the dare officer coming to your school and saying, hey, you know, if your mom does... A drug or B drug, she's probably going to, you know, sell your toys or whatever, whatever, you know, misperceptions they put out. And the movies about, you know, maybe heroin use where the, the girlfriend always dies and the dude ends up in jail. So there's an external stigma. And then there's an internal stigma where people see this, they take it in, and they say, oh, well, if that's what's expected of me, that's what I'm going to do. That's the only way I know of, of operating. And so a user's union gives people a chance to create new new paradigms or you know, new examples of living as a drug user and saying, you know what, I'm a drug user and I don't steal. I don't cheat people. I might be dependent on, you know, whatever substance it is that I like. I may just party, but it's okay. And I can still be a responsible citizen. I'm still accountable. You know, we still have a voice. We still care about ourselves and the community around us. Yeah, and if I may for a second, well, let's talk about stigma once again. The longer stigma comes language. So what we try to do at our organization is basically change the language. There's no at our organization there's no such thing as an addict. Tell me, please, I would I wish for someone in the audience to tell me what does an addict look like. Can you walk up on someone and say, That's an addict, that's an addict, that's an addict. You don't know. You could be working again next to someone each and every day and don't know that they they may be a drug user. We try to put the person first, not the substance. In this society, so many times people put the substance or the issue before the person. Let's humanize the situation and stop stigmatizing and labeling individuals. Everybody does not fit in that same box. 
when you talk about language, the language, as my colleague Eric has already stated, is internal and external. We, as active or former drug users, change the language within ourselves and how we speak. When we go out, we explain that to people, to under constituents and the politician and legislation as well. So they also, when we speak to them, know how to talk, how to speak to us, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, and then they have a more of a respect for us. When we go in and we speak to these said individuals, they know we mean business because we know the issue. And at that point, sometimes they don't even know who they're speaking to. When I say that, I mean this. They don't know whether the person in front of them talking to them is an active or a former drug user. I say that they don't know until the person or the said individual decides to reveal that said issue. But at the, with that being said, sometimes these said individuals reveal their active status on how they are and what they do and how they're living, and then they get more of a respect from that said individual because they show how articulate they are, they show that they know the issue, and they show that they can be a productive person in society. When people look at a homeless person, it, what kills me is that some people say they're that way because they want to be that way. When somebody sees someone who may be on who may be on drugs or going through the uh, stages of change and being in, in a, maybe in a chaotic situation and using chaotically, they can automatically point at that person. But they don't know anything about that person to say that they want to be like that. That person can change if they have the right. Um, encouragement. A lot of times people, when they go to certain programs, these programs only treat part of the problem. The issue of the drug use is only 10% of the problem. In this country, we need to start spending more money on the whole individual and treat the person as a whole. We have to treat them um, holistically, meaning we have to try other and new ways and new techniques to treat these people. Sometimes you cannot put a Band-Aid on it and expect it to work. You have to work on the other issues, not only the drug use or the drinking. You have to work on a person's education, their self-esteem. You have to work on their mental as aspect as well. And if they're homeless, you have to put them in, find adequate housing for them, find a job for them, and they can get that. Once a person gets stable, they will eventually get to the point where enough is enough for them. You cannot make anyone do anything that they do not want to do. When we talk, we feel that this is the best harm reduction technique. In harm reduction, we meet people where they at. We don't wait for them to always come to us. Sometimes we have to go out in the community and meet these people in their environment and let them know or simply ask them a question. What's wrong with your community? What would you like change? And then they tell us. Sometimes they don't. They, they may not know at the time of the issues that's going on. But once you tell, they come in the they come in the office and they see the issues that we're working on, and they learn the power dynamics of how society and how politics work. Then they get involved and they want to have a voice. They want to make change. No one wants to be in the same situation day after day, going through the same thing. And we give these people a chance to not be labeled, not to be stigmatized. And this is what we need to stop doing in society, stop stigmatizing and just labeling people and treat people as human beings. One thing I love about our organization, our organization, there's no color in our organization, number one. 
There's no sexual identity in our organization. We are comprised of all five boroughs of New York City. We are black, white, Latino. We are straight, gay, lesbian, queer, whatever you want to call it. We are comprised of all New York City. All New Yorkers are a part of vocal or can be a part of vocal if they want to honestly learn more about themselves, their community, and they want to make a difference and want to make a change. It starts with us at vocal, and we go out in the community and make it happen. Yeah, and that's, that's another uh, thing that, you know, we've brought from the context of harm reduction into organizing is one of the tenets of harm reduction is low threshold. You want to make things as accessible as possible for the people you're working with. You know, you don't want to put any barriers uh, if possible. And so we try and bring that into organizing work, and we, we try and make it as easy as possible for people to join. We try not to, to create those barriers. And, um, oh, yeah, so, Ken, I believe we may have another member trying to call in. I don't know if there's um, a way to, to put him on. He's not on or right now, so I think it's, I think the two of you are holding the dialogue right now. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Oh, another thing, too, is, you know, uh, he was, Hiawatha was talking about the language and the stigmatizing, and some of that is, like, uh, people who, who are in the – who do step work and do the groups and stuff – when they when they stumble and they use they they consider it dirty you know or at the methadone clinic or at a drug you know any kind of drug treatment facility they give urine toxicologies and when they come up positive it's a dirty urine you know which would would lead someone to believe that the opposite would be a clean urine but I don't want to touch any urine you know all urine's pretty much dirty to me and so it's these these words that we use that we don't even think about but you know it, it kind of uh, puts people in these little these little uh brackets of our understanding of who they are, you know, what they do and, and what that means. Um and I'm sure Hyatt has a lot a lot more to say about the language too, right? We were talking about that the other day. Yes. And um also at the same time when you think about that, think about this. I don't have nothing against a twelve step program or anything like that. But when you think about a person that has 12 months, a year, or two years, three years clean, or whatever, and they, they're going through something, and they decide to drink or use again. And then you tell them that they lost their, their good time or their clean time. They lost their clean time. I, I really don't know how to relate to that. Why is it that we don't right then grab that person, find out exactly what caused them to use, to relapse, to fall back, to use again, whatever the case might be, and grab that person and talk to them right then and console them and find out what their issues are. If they're happy where they are, if they're not. Most of the time, they're not. But when we tell them that they lose this or they lose that, what, what ends up happening? A lot of times, we end up losing that person for a week, a month, or a year. And we do not want to have any type of language or any type of systems in place that push people away or push them right back into what they're trying to run away from because they feel like they're wilding in mud. They feel like that anyway, so we don't need to push them or cause them to, to continue to do so. Okay, and, I think and that ties another, into... I'm okay, sorry, we okay. to say? Yeah, I think... Uh, oops. Your other person was calling in, but they just dropped. So go ahead. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, again, that ties in, you know, like I said, 
as harm reductionists and as an organization, we don't have anything against 12 step. Um, you know, if someone, if it works for someone, then by all means do it. If someone hasn't tried it yet, I would encourage them to give it a shot and it may work for them. But harm reduction is about options. You know, it's about letting people do what they need to do. So sometimes that might be use management and sometimes that might even be hectic, chaotic drug use for a while and trying to help them find steps to to stabilize and, and reduce the harm of that. You know, and so we, we take that as a philosophy, both as, you know, our harm reduction practices and our drafting and as, you know, a user's union. We we try and work around people and where they're at. We don't ask that people come to uh, our meetings absolutely straight. You know, we might ask that if you have a dependency, then when I said straight, I mean like Take sober. Your <laughs> you know, if someone has a dependency, then you can go ahead and get straight, but don't come to the meeting, you know, falling asleep on yourself. Or you know, so out of it that you can't you can't keep be responsible. You know, stay with the group. Exactly, and then also as as a drug user union, there are things that we have worked on that no one else has worked on. Um, we have also we have done a, a, what we call a, what what society deems or have called participatory research projects. Okay, we we've done um, two of them thus far. We have done one behind the syringe access, and we've done another one behind with, with the methadone report that was just re- re- released last month. Now, a participant, for those who don't know what a participatory research report is, that is basically those that the subject matter is about go out in the community and do the research themselves. Now, they do that research themselves, and they report that. But, they, of course, they have a help of certified researchers and things like that. Vocal did these projects with the help of um, Urban Justice Center, okay? And they did these reports because these were issues that the community felt needed to be addressed, and we felt, and we went out and did these participatory research projects so that way we could bring notice up to, oh, excuse me, bring notice to these said issues, and we can have a fact-finding session. Once we had the fact-finding session, we had a, a, a release, of these said reports. Now, these reports are being looked at all throughout New York City, both of them, and they're on our website. So anyone that wants to look at the syringe access report or the methanol report, which is beyond methanol, beyond methanol they can look on our website and, and look at these reports, and there's some valuable information in there that can be used. And just because they're about syringes and about um, methadone don't mean they, they, the stuff that's in there just applies to that. There are things in there that can apply to other set issues also. Now, when we talk when we talk about um, other set issues, we try to work with anyone who honestly believes in a, a paradigm shift in social justice when it comes to the issue of the those individuals that are low income. Okay those individuals that actively or formally use drugs, those individuals that are formally incarcerated, and those individuals that are HIV positive who feel they have been unjustly dealt with in their society, and there are a lot of them. But what I don't understand is in this country, how can you, and don't get me wrong because I keep saying this country, I'm a former Marine and I love my country and I serve for my country, but there's some things that I don't understand. How can you have an agency out there that's getting all this money to go around and pick up stray dogs and cats, spade and neuter them, feed them, and give them homes, 
but you do not have anyone to really give, give people housing. Why is it that all over this country you have empty condos and co-ops and all these constructions going up, these buildings going up, but nobody's living in them? We even worked on a project dealing with that, okay? And we found that there were so many landlords that had completed and incompleted properties that were just sitting there. The city can do something about that, and they can do something about their their hunger, their hunger and their homeless problem. They can also do something about their um, their health care. A lot of times when you have active and former drug users going in for health care, they go in for one situation, but once they find out that this person uses drugs, they get treated a totally different way. This should not be. The person should be treated for what they're going in there for. And there's just a lot of things that we try to work with and we try to work with people, and all we basically want is an equal and level playing field for everyone. Yeah, I want to just say one thing. I can really relate to this issue because I was homeless for two years, and there, there's so few resources you have to get out of homelessness once you're there. It's just, it's, yeah. you're so stuck. And I just right. want to say yeah, that. I was also yeah. um, homeless when I came into contact with the harm reduction community. It's through the harm reduction community that I'm uh, now housed, uh, employed, and have health care. And the, the thing was, when individuals are in that situation and they're homeless, you know, I mean, it's not like they want to be, but there's so many obstacles that's put before them. And I me mean, personally, I don't understand why is it more more obstacles put before them than what really needs to be? Now, sometimes these individuals, they they run into other problems, and that causes them or starts them to use chaotically. Um, that's number one. Number two, if an individual is getting their medication, is HIV positive, and they're getting med- medication, and they're bouncing from shelter to shelter. Their health care is atrocious. Why? Because they don't have a refrigerator to constantly put their medications in. Their medications are, always end up getting lost or stolen. You know, we have to do something better in this country for these people. Another thing, not to get off the subject at all, but we have a, 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 a population that's getting older. We really have to take care of our elderly people. We're going to be elderly one day, but really we need to do a better job of taking care of our elderly folks also. Uh, I'm sorry. And, you know, that, that kind of ties into why Vocal as a user's union does so many things. You know, you can't work on the needs of people affected by the drug war and drug users without looking at uh, prison and the way people are incarcerated and housed Uh-oh. and stored away from the communities. You can't look at drug use without looking at HIV, you know, being the AIDS, hepatitis C. You can't look at drug use and, and not look at the, the social factors, the economy, the economy that's fueled by the prison, that's fueled by the black market. Um, you know, so a lot of ways we we feel almost like an improv troupe sometimes or an improv actor where, you know, we can't say no. We're always saying yes, yes, because everything is tied together. And if we don't look at it as a holistic way, if we try and compartmentalize the issues, you know, a lot of stuff is left behind and nothing's going to change. Nothing gets done. And that's why it comes, when it comes to us, we're, now, we're, remember, we're a small organization trying to accomplish, accomplish a lot. 
And we, unfortunately, right now, we have limited resources. But really what we need to do is we need to try to get more resources and we need a lot more funding, okay? With that being said, I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to comment on the prison industrial complex. Look at what's going on with the prison industrial complex. Most of the time, most of the people that they get, that they arrest, okay, are black and brown people. Most of the people that they get are poor people. Most of these people are active or former drug users. They're, um, they're homeless, you know. So they target these groups of people to fill up their beds of their prison. Now, you may hear things of them talking about right now that they are taking federal funds, that they're taking state and local funds out of the prison system and investing in other things. Well, if they're doing that, who's paying for the prisons? What they're doing is they're privatizing the prison system, and that just means that the rich is getting richer. Now, this is not about Occupy Wall Street, but there's a lot of reasons why people are down there in New York City and Zuccotti Park. There's a lot of reasons why they're marching through Oakland, L.A., D.C., and all over this here country, and actually all over the world. But we're talking about this country and this city right here, right now. This thing right now, that it doesn't make sense for people to be getting these astronomical numbers for these petty crimes. It doesn't make sense for individuals to be stopped and frisked at a rate that cost this city $75 million a year. That's $75 million that could be going to something more constructive, to more social programs, to education, to health care, okay? And I like what the mayor did when he put $30 million to black and brown young men to donate to them, to donate to them to, for, for men of color to get education, to, get a, to try and get a job. Okay, that's $30 million that he donated of his own money. But it's two times that amount that is costing the city to arrest those same individuals. Okay? Now, most of the time when these individuals get, get arrested, if they have a job, they end up losing their job and getting separated from their families. So it's a lot of ways in which this prison industrial complex is destroying our nation, destroying families, and something needs to be done about it. There's no reason why for some of these petty crimes, some of possession, you have people going through, going through the court system, costing this court system so much money, when you could just basically have, uh, um, instead of having prisons, you can have people go to treatment. Treatment costs a whole lot less than prisons. And if we work towards treatment and working on the whole person, not just the the um, one side of the issue, we will have better outcomes. And until we have agencies that will honestly devote the time and the money needed, we're going to continue having what we have now. And, and what I call it and what I believe it is is a revolving door. And the reason why it's a revolving door is because it's a cash cow. And a lot of people want to continually get paid from this cash cow, this revolving door. Okay, and something needs to be done to stop the revolving door, to actually care and treat the person, the whole person, treat the community, the whole community. We have a lot of people dying unnecessarily. And what, is the, what should it be about? It should be about saving lives. And I keep saying that, yes, because I honestly believe that, and I, I want others out there to honestly believe that too. It doesn't matter your sexual orientation. It doesn't matter your color. You should not die early and unnecessarily when something can be prevented and something could be done. 
You should not go to jail for long periods of time when something can be done to stop the issue that you may have. Okay, thank you very much. We're going to have to move on to our next segment now. I want to thank both of you guys, Hiawatha and Eric, for being our guests. And your web address is, what is your web address? It's www.vocal-ny.org. And for those of you who, who failed English as I did in middle school, the hyphen is the straight line that's in the middle. Thanks, you guys. Well, I'm going to put you on hold now, and I'm going to bring on our next guest. I'm going to be dialing out. It's going to take me one second here. Hello. Hello, Dr. Cassian. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. All right, everyone, let me quickly introduce. This is Dr. Edward Cassian from Harvard University. He is the framer of the self-medication hypothesis. Uh, welcome to the show tonight. Hello, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, you're, you're kind of scratchy. Is that something at your end or my end? I think the scratchiness just went away. Do I come better? Away. That's fine. Can you hear me loud and clear? Yeah, I can hear you good now. Um, tell, tell us a little bit, what is the self-medication hypothesis? Well, the self-medication hypothesis uh, is an attempt to get at the uh, human psychological underpinnings of uh, what is the appeal of addictive drugs. Uh, it gets to the questions of, are we pleasure seekers? Are we pleasure seekers? Are we pain avoidant uh, Are we people who are more uh, into finding things that get us high, or are we people more that want to find comfort and connection? The, the, the self-medication hypothesis gets at a basic issue that uh, addictive drugs ca- catch a hold of people because addictive drugs, in various ways, relieve human psychological suffering. That's part one of the self-medication hypothesis, that becoming addicted is rooted in human psychological suffering, and uh, addictive drugs, in various ways, uh, relieve that kind of suffering. Part two is that there's a considerable degree of psychopharmacologic specificity, or if you will, people have to a considerable degree uh, to prefer a particular drug over another drug. So that's part two. And, And the way I think this plays itself out is nobody sets out to become addicted. Nobody sets out to find a particular drug or decide they're going to get onto heroin and that's what they're going to use. But as part of, in our human nature, part of what is a normal developmental phase, part of it is people are exposed in various phases of their life, and they get exposed to these drugs. They try them, and they have a discovery that one drug appeals to them over another drug, and and, and that's what captures uh, the person's uh, mind and body and makes the, the drugs become compelling. I call it the discovery. People experiment, and they find that a particular drug 
makes them feel better, changes the way they feel, relocates them, substitutes their confusion and not knowing uh, where they are with their feelings to suddenly feeling better, to feeling more comfortable, uh, and, and so forth. Okay. Uh, one thing that I've noticed is that people seem to use alcohol to medicate almost anything from depression to anxiety. Do you think that might be connected to availability? Well, that, that's, that's part of it. You're talking about people who become dependent on alcohol? Yes. Uh, well, uh, say it again, Ken. Uh, how are you posing that? Well, um, a lot of people that will drink alcohol just uh, aren't involved with illegal drugs. They just, uh, you know, that's not part of their lifestyle. So because there's alcohol is so available, do you think that's one reason why people use it to medicate so many things? Oh, that, that's, that's part of it. You know, uh, I say there's a, to use a technical term, uh, it, it has a biphasic action. It, it, it acts in two ways, and maybe that's another reason why it's so appealing. If you take low to moderate doses of the drug and you're a person who's tense, anxious, tightly wrapped, uh, it, it, it's a great unwrapping, dissolving drug. You know, uh, a, a famous psychoanalyst, source unknown, says uh, our superego or our conscience is that part of ourselves that's soluble in alcohol. You know, my God, I go to the party and I'm uptight and did I put on the right tie? Woman might worry is, 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 did she put on the right perfume? Is her hemline too long, too short? And, and then you come back an hour later to that party and people have had their drinks and what do you notice? The volume has gone up and there's a who cares attitude. I think in that respect, it's more of a, uh, less of a superego solvent, which it is, but more of an ego solvent. People who are uptight about getting close to people, people who uh, uh, feel uncomfortable in their skin in relationships, uh, can suddenly warm up and soften up with the low to moderate doses of alcohol. And, and so that gives it a powerful appeal to people who are uptight about closeness and dependency issues. You follow me? Yes. That's part one. Part two is if you're a person with a, with a severe agitated depression, uh, the low to moderate doses won't do it. You need a heavy dose, and that's an obliterating dose. And, and you know, technically, is called a sedative hypnotic drug. Sedative refers to relaxing, warming up, loosening up action of the drug. The hypnotic part of it means in heavier doses, if it doesn't put you to sleep, it'll put you almost there or calm down the powerful agitation that, that can make people feel very wild and very troubled. Okay, that makes sense. Um, we see a lot of uh, co-occurrence between mental illness and drug use, and do you think that fits in with the self-medication hypothesis? I, I lost you there. Uh, we see a lot of co-occurrence between uh, mental illness and uh, drug or alcohol use. Uh, how does that fit in with the self-medication hypothesis? Oh, it's, it's, it's very relevant. Uh, you know, the self-medication hypothesis, from my perspective, was rooted in focusing on what are the specific feeling states that drugs and alcohol alter. Just think from the very statement of it. You don't have to be uh, a psychoanalyst, uh, uh, a psychopharmacologist, 
or a finely tuned psychiatrist to know and be aware that the range of psychiatric illnesses have a lot of troubled feelings associated with them, very painful feelings. You can even take the case of bipolar. The old-fashioned term is manic depressive illness. The old-fashioned stereotype was these were expansive people who were just floating high and feeling fine, but you sit and you, you talk to uh, people with bipolar illness and you see the intensity of the feelings are very uh, disconcerting, uh, to use that term, discombobulating, very threatening. And so even with so conditions in which you think people are flying high with their mania, those people are in a lot of distress. I don't think I need to make a point about depression, only to say there's all kinds of depression. There's the psychomotor retardation of uh, retarded depression, so people are so immobilized, feeling so awful, they can hardly uh, move a limb in their body or would rather just stay in bed. Think about the agitated depression. Think about the anxious depression uh, and so forth. Just think about the various effects of these drugs and how they might interact with uh, these kinds of conditions. And, you know, the other problem is an awful lot of people are walking around and they have one of these conditions or the other. They don't even know it, but it's the feeling states, the painful feeling states associated with a range of psychiatric conditions uh, that I think people discover at least short term. And, by the way, that's the point, is the, <laughs> the self-medication hypothesis in no way uh, would assert uh, that these are long-term solutions because the, the, the solution, quote-unquote, of the drug or the alcohol ultimately uh, defeats them. It's an attempt at self-correction that fails. It's the short-term effect that people go back to, but you, complete, you, you repeatedly go back to that short-term effect. Pretty soon it switches over from self-medication to drug dependency, and then you need the drug to feel normal, if you know what I mean. You're no longer just mm -hmm. getting pain of the psychiatric condition. So one thing Dr. Pat Benning has said is uh, before we take away someone's coping mechanism, their drug use, that we should try to help them find other coping mechanisms that will work. What do you think of that statement? Well, for sure. Who would argue with that? Uh, it's it's a, uh, and, and uh, so in no way should one understand the self-medication hypothesis as being a reason for continuing to resort to drugs. The, 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 the effect of drugs are illusory. They give the illusion or they give, I mean, that's part of the problem. Short term, the drugs really work. You have to see and help patients to have the realization that long term, they don't work. And by the way, it's not only the clinician that beholds that. The patient over time with guidance from a clinician figures that out, and then you help them to have the discovery that there are alternative ways to deal with their troubles. I mean, you know, uh, if you're a cut-off, isolated person and you, you find comfort in sitting home and having your drink and mellowing out in that way, but pretty soon people finally begin to see they can't do it. They get detoxified. In the detox program, they go to their first AA meetings, and all of a sudden they find there's some comfort, even though they didn't want to, to go to a meeting and find there's comfort in relationships, which is something they've been uh, avoiding or have been avoidant of or withdrawn from. So that, that's one alternative. Uh, there are alternatives of psychotherapy that begin to give people alternative ways to cope 
with their problems. Uh, there are medications that used gingerly and carefully to relieve their problems uh, can uh, often ha have a dramatic effect in helping people uh, to realize that their choice of drug wasn't such a good one, and maybe with professional guidance they can find ways to cope with their painful feelings uh, with legitimate medications that are designed to do that without producing the problems of addiction. Now, I know part of the hypothesis states that uh, certain drugs have greater appeal for certain people. Who, for example, opiates, who would you think opiates would appeal to? That's a very good question. It's sort of where I got started uh, with these ideas. Uh, it, it, it was my experience early beginning to work with many, many uh, opiate-dependent people, because that's really where I got started in this field, starting a methadone maintenance program, uh, that, uh, you know, my, my first thought was, and I was relatively new, rel within a year or two out of training, uh, that I said to myself, you know, opiates are, are painkillers, and just thinking that there was a general uh, a pain-relieving uh, action of these drugs, so it might help with just any kind of psychological pain, which to some extent has some merit. But think about it. Opiates are wonderful calming agents. They are wonderful uh, agents for taking uh, a sense of dis-ease, uh, agitation, and so forth. Uh, so that you could say there's something to that. But as I began to take histories from these patients, I was just so impressed over and over again with violent experiences growing up, uh, very threatening, uh, uh, rageful situations that they were exposed to that in a sense inoculated them with the same kind of violence and rageful reactions they, they grew up around, whether it was in the family environment, in their communities, in their neighbors. And then when I... Uh, Somehow, I'm not sure I can exactly tell you where I figured out how to ask it. I began to ask the question, what did the drug do for you when you first used the drug? And by the way, that's an alliance building, a, a building approach to patients. That's different than constantly reminding people, which a lot of clinicians do, what the drugs are doing to them. Nobody wants mm -hmm. to sit with the patient and figure out what it did for them. Well, these patients over and over again say, Doc, I felt normal for the first time. And I'm thinking, gee, does this have anything to do with those violent backgrounds they were exposed to? For the first time, I felt mellow. For the first time, I calmed down. Uh, I was filled full of rage. And some of that was unsolicited on my part. And that rage went away and so forth and so on. Uh, and then uh, I would talk to some of the patients and they would say, you know, I started messing around with alcohol and it, it just kind of, totally lost control and I became a rageful beast but at the same time some of my friends were using opiates and it took away that part of me it took away that part of me that I know has been there that I've feared and it has driven me near crazy and threatened and driven other people crazy so it, it was the calming quieting down of aggressive violent feelings and by the way you see that with bipolar illness you see it in agitated depressions uh, you see a lot of anger and irritability associated with anxiety conditions. But one should not be surprised that opiates would have an appeal where there's a lot of rage, angry, agitated feelings and reactions. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, how about stimulants like cocaine or amphetamine? Sure, sure. 
uh, in my early days, I used to say, what is a stimulant? A stimulant is a stimulant. It stimulates. It's an activating drug. It's a drug that takes people with low energy states, people who are deactivated, de-energized, uh, and it puts them in a more energized, activated state. In fact, it's an antidepressant. You, I don't know if you know this, Ken, but there was a time when psychopharmacologists would give a test dose of an amphetamine to a patient to test the possibility that what we used to call the old-fashioned tricyclic antidepressant, uh, like Elevil, for example, was the classical, one of the first ones, whether they were going to respond to the Elevil. You'd give a test dose of a stimulant. Well, surprise, surprise, uh, it is the case that people on the street, in their experimentation, find out uh, that the drug relieves the low energy states, the poor sense of self, the uh, depleted sense of self. So it's a short-term, has a short-term antidepressant effect. But this is where a good, good, good idea can guide you, but it can misguide you. Because like I said, I used to think a stimulant is a stimulant. It stimulates, and that must be its appeal. And it's especially effective with people with covert or not apparent subclinical depression. But then... Uh, uh, I, I was I was reviewing some uh, a, a, an edition of the Archives of General Psychiatry. This was in the early 1980s, and I came on this paper and that was dealing with adult attention deficit disorder. In those days, yeah. it was called minimal brain dysfunction (MBD), and I said to myself, "My God, my theory has been misguiding me. I suspect a lot of my patients are self-medicating themselves." for attention deficit disorder. Well, now, you could say to me, is that just taking care of the ADD? But if you listen to clinicians, whether it's from a generation back or listen to the diagnostic evaluations that are going on with patients that have ADD, there's a lot of associated depression, there's a lot of associated bipolar disorder, and so forth. And, and these people have the uh, experience that they take a stimulant Rather than revving them up, it calms them down and it focuses, as well as by doing that, probably short-circuiting and relieving them of a lot of the symptomatology and coexisting psychiatric conditions that come along uh, with uh, attention deficit disorder. So stimulants are, are short-term effect. I put it in quotes, unquotes. I say short-term uh, relieving agents for depression but they, they help with conditions like attention deficit disorder in that they have a paradoxical effect with people who have that. And as a matter of fact, after I read that article and I said I've been missing some patients, I, I was uh, determined that when I saw the right person that I thought was self-medicating for ADD, uh, I would treat that person. And lo and behold, within a year, a woman came along that had an extraordinarily uh, heavy uh, cocaine dependence, uh, using it intravenously, and she had a history going back with a lot of the symptomatology of ADD. And I put her on a pediatric, I'm giving you the short version, it was one of the most dramatic things in my clinical experience, and I'm not advocating this for every patient. I put her on Ritalin, which nobody had done. I, For an adult, as far as I knew at that time, I, I went to the physician's desk reference and could only find doses recommendations for MBD in those days uh, for children. 
So I put her on a little more than a pediatric dosage, but she had a dramatic response. I've been following that patient since 1982 when I treated her, and she has never gone back to cocaine when she was relentlessly using it and it was going to kill her. So it's just an example of how a good theory can misguide because I was missing those cases. And then it, when I got it right, uh, it was able to lead me to a therapeutic intervention. Interestingly enough, uh, there's a very good group of people at Columbia who are, who are further pursuing those avenues of what medications, including legitimate substitution of psychostimulants, uh, can help people uh, with their cocaine dependency or amphetamine dependency if they are wittingly or unwittingly self-medicating uh, their attention deficit disorder. Maybe it's too long an answer, but it's a good antidepressant short term, and other people have this paradoxical effect that it fixes what they suffer from when they have a attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yeah, I have met many people who had a cocaine problem and then did get the Ritalin for their ADHD, and uh, they no longer need to use cocaine. So it completely agrees right. with my experience. Well, and, and I don't want you, your, your listeners to go away thinking I'm recommending or a lot of people are wrecking that. It's, it's, you've got to do it, and you've got to do it very gingerly, and you've got to make absolutely sure that you're not just supporting a, a drug habit, but that you're treating legit, legitimate pre-existing, co-existing conditions that you're targeting with that drug to relieve the pain and suffering and distress and not giving it to support an addiction to a psychostimulant, which is what cocaine and crystal meth and amphetamines are. Okay, let's move on to cannabis. Do you have any work on cannabis? I have the least to say about cannabis, only to say this. Uh, if, if you've ever experimented with it and you watch and ask people who have used it, again, cannabis has both a dual action. It has a calming and sedating effect, but it also has a stimulating effect. Some people are more affected uh, by the stimulating effect, and other people find the appeal in its calming effect. Now, that is not to ignore the fact that there's growing evidence that if you, if you have a predisposition uh, or you're predisposed uh, to psychotic reactions, it can also screw you up in that way, and it can, it can precipitate psychotic reactions. So it's, it's a complicated drug. And the, what the other reason why I have not a lot to say about it is there aren't many people over the years that have come to me and come to clinicians like me with their dependency on marijuana, although, you know, with the self-help movement and the consciousness raising, the drug is a drug is a drug, more people are doing that. But I haven't worked enough with marijuana-dependent people to tell you more specifically how it fits or doesn't fit, only to say, for example, perhaps you've heard of uh, Dr. Ned Hallowell, one of the big authorities on uh, ADHD and its development. He wrote that well-received book, Driven to Distraction. He's a friend of mine. And I said, well, what's your experience with people that have ADHD and marijuana? He says, the kids that have that love it. And when he says that, I think they love it for the, the, same, the, the reasons that I cited about the action. It has stimulating properties, and I think it has some calming down effect paradoxically, like Ritalin does, but also for the people that are suffering with medication, tense states, it's 
also probably the case that the sedating effect, the calming uh, down effect of marijuana has appeal for people who are a little bit too revved up uh, but not necessarily suffering with ADHD. That's that's just a preliminary uh, comment on it. Oh, okay. Have you looked at all uh, about nicotine in relation to schizophrenia? Well, uh, I hate people who take the uh, public speaking opportunities in the media to uh, promote their books, but Dr. Mark Albanese and myself within the last two or three years published a book on the self-medication and hypothesis, and I noticed that we, we, we didn't get to nicotine until Chapter 7. But again, I said I, I wasn't as authoritative on it uh, because I haven't had a lot of people come to me as a general psychiatrist or as an addiction specialist with their nicotine dependency problem. But the few people that I focused on, uh, I said to one patient, I said, what does the nicotine do for you? Or what does the smoking the cigarette do for you? This man just kind of cryptically said, well, if I need a pickup, I light up. Or if I need to come down, I light up. But that really gets into the part of it that I'm not as much of an authority on, which is into the neurobiological effects of nicotine. But that response of my patient is very consistent with what the experts who research this at the neurobiological level know, which is there are subsets of nicotine receptors that cause people to respond to the nicotine in different ways, depending upon, I don't know whether it's the dose of nicotine or in particular people, it acts on one set of uh, receptors than another, but that some people get stimulated by nicotine, some people get relaxed with nicotine, and so again, it's not inconsistent. Now, having said that, you ask me about schizophrenia. In my opinion, and I've written about this in a number of places, I think that, that there is such a high co-occurrence of nicotine dependence. Did, did you ask me about mental illness? I think you said schizophrenia, or am I correct? Schizophrenia. Incredibly high co-occurrence of nicotine dependence in patients with schizophrenia. And so, you know, if you have this idea, say, how could this apply? Well, in 1989, I shifted my locus of activity from outpatient treatment and psychiatric services for uh, drug-dependent people to a state hospital setting where there was obviously a concentration of patients with schizophrenia. Those people thought I might be coming, and they said, come to the hospital. Your, your self-medication uh, hypothesis applies. I said, but what, what are people self-medicating with? Well, when I began to see what, what the, the condition was of a schizophrenia, they not only have these po what we call positive symptoms of florid hallucinations, agitation, delusions, paranoid ideas, more strikingly, we can more or less get that under control with our medications, but then they're left with what we call the negative symptoms. I call it psychological blahs. It's the loss of energy, the loss of motivation, the inability to communicate. Uh, it's called asociality or, or anhedonia, the inability to feel pleasure and so forth. I think in those instances the nicotine is acting on the nicotinic receptor subsystem that has to do with activating and making people feel more energized and less apathetic. And I think that's one of the explanations, at least, as to why nicotine has such a powerful appeal. I think 
it acts on the negative symptoms. Am I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Does that sound? Yes, that's perfectly clear. Okay. Uh, one of my concerns as a harm reductionist was I would like to see schizophrenics be able to have access to electronic cigarettes, which are much safer than the uh, regular cigarettes where tobacco burns. Oh boy, that's, that that would that that gets to be again controversial. Uh, I, I I really no, I'm not sure I can uh, I can talk authoritatively, but I think from a harm reduction perspective, rightfully you you, uh, you and maybe you could even get me to make a case for that because obviously uh, one of the deadliest aspects of nicotine dependence is in the form we uh, deliver it, and that is with uh, with the uh, n uh, the uh, the, the tars, the, the carbon monoxide problem, the uh, lung complication problem. So uh, you, you could almost convince me using a harm reduction model uh, that that would make some sense. Uh, I, uh, I do think maybe there's ways we ought to continue to explore what the alternatives might be. And by the way, uh, I think we've seen some impact, some impact when I was working, and I'm, I'm no longer working in the state hospital system, I retired from that system three years ago. We've seen some impact with the newer second-generation antipsychotic medications that get better at the negative symptoms that seems to have maybe a better chance in helping patients perhaps transition to nicotine gum, nicotine patches, and transition and get away from it. And it might be just a little easier uh, given the newer medications that help more with the negative symptoms. Okay, sounds good. Uh, we're about out of time now. I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Kentian. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And everyone, tune in next week. Our guest will be Rebecca Fransway, who is the author of 12-Step Horror Stories. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Okay, I'm going to wish you all a good night and best wishes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.